0: Father in heaven, you're an awesome God. What a privilege you have afforded us to take the time to spend together discussing your awesomeness and your love, your principles and how they apply to our lives, but even more so how they apply to our work. The things we do majority of our hours during the day. Father, you are part of that. You, you want to enhance it and you want to show your power to the dying world. Father, thank you for using us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn and to share May we appreciate this this afternoon and may you receive all the glory and honor for whatever it is that we achieve. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Christianity in the workplace. I want to just simply state to you that when I was asked to give this talk, um, I I felt it was because of what I was living. Um, So I'm not here to give you an academic study. I'm not here to record a whole lot of studies. I'm here to talk about a case study, our practice, and how we have uh, evolved or how we have utilized our Christianity in the workplace. So I'm going to begin with a little bit of introduction about myself, and we'll move forward. First of all, I have uh, no disclaimers. And the objectives that we'd like to accomplish is we want to describe the biblical secret to success as a Christian organization. Uh, We want to demonstrate the Integration of the Christian philosophy in the workplace, and we want to identify the rewards of Christian service in the medical office. Um, I want to begin this by talking about my personal journey. When I was a little kid, I was a very talkative child. Matter of fact, my parents stated that they dreaded when my mouth opened. (laughs) They had no idea what was going to come out. Uh, Usually, because you know, most kids tell the what the truth. truth. and adults we kind of avoid that to a great degree and so they were very frightened of me and as I grew older my parents said listen son you're going to be a preacher you're just going to be a preacher there's just no other alternative you're going to be a preacher and um, I, I would just fuss with them no I'm not going to be a preacher oh yes you're going to be a preacher and, and my mother would go through all of her things of wow I would become a preacher um, and then I guess as I fought with them they said well at least maybe you'll be a lawyer well I had another influence in my life, and that was my older brother. My older brother would walk around. He was like almost six years older than me, and he would walk around, and people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I'm a medical missionary evangelist. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> I remember going around, what's a medical missionary evangelist? He looked at me and said, it's a doctor, boy. <laughs> and I said, oh. So as I once emulated my brother, I really would look forward to aspect to becoming a physician. I just dreamed about it, but... My parents were into it, you know, like one son, medical missionary advantage, but another son, we want you to be a preacher. Well, nevertheless, what occurred was confusion. <laughs> I was a confused young man, wanted to please my parents, wanted to do something I thought I wanted to do because my big brother was going to do it. And I had what I call a very biased reason. Well, one day, my brother, who was a lot older than I, uh, came back from boarding school and he left a book. And I was an avid reader of books when I was a little kid. I just used to devour books. And he left a book called Doctors, Doctors, Doctors. And that book, I don't think it's in print any longer. But it, it was a book full of just unbelievable stories about how physicians gave their lives for their patients and what they would do for them. And it was story after story. And I used to read underneath my covers at night with a flashlight. I couldn't stop reading. That book just took my heart. It was so compassionate. And I said, oh, this is what I got to be. I got to be a doctor. But my parents didn't think I needed to be one. And with that confusion, I went on to school. And while I was in college, I was still struggling. I I entered in pre-med, but I was still living with the idea of what my parents said. And I said, am I making a mistake because something I want to do versus something that God wants me to do? And that really bothered me. So I I started praying, and I started reading books like Ministry of Healing, uh, Consuls on Diets and Foods, and, and Consuls on Health. And lo and behold, while reading Consuls on Health, I had an epiphany. Here it is. Page 34 of Consuls on Health, it said this. The Savior devoted more time and labor to healing the afflicted of their maladies than to preaching. His last injunction to his apostles, his representatives of earth, was to lay hands on the sick that they might recover. When the master shall come, he will commend those who have visited the sick and relieve the necessities of the afflicted. I had my argument for my parents. It was settled. I've won. <laughs> I said, Mom, Jesus did more healing than preaching, and I want to be like Jesus. And that's not a statement that I just made up. That's what I always said. I wanted to be like Jesus. But when I saw that statement, it gave me a ratification that I indeed could be a doctor. So onward I pursued. I went to Loma Linda University, I graduated from there, and I did my residency in pediatrics, also at Loma Linda University. It's a long story there, which I don't have time to tell. <laughs> a person in this room is very acquainted with me in that story, but nevertheless, it is good seeing him. Nevertheless, I will tell you this that. When I made that decision, it was because my view of pediatrics was awful. I hated pediatrics. I did not want to go into it. But in the short run, because God put me with a lot of students who were what I call the bomb in the class when it came to attitude. <laughs> I was stuck with these throughout my entire senior year of rotations. And when I came to pediatrics, I said, I can't live with these guys anymore. I decided because I hated pediatrics, I was going to step it up to get away from them. And lo and behold, stepping it up brought accolades to me I never dreamed about. And everyone in the residency program, including the chief of, resident, of, of the, chief of the of department of pediatrics, thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. They didn't know I was running from somebody else. <laughs> That's how God works. He works in ways we don't even begin to imagine. He knew what he needed for me to be. He made a calling. I was fighting it. And I ended up being a pediatrician, and I ended up going ahead and practicing general pediatrics because of my wife's insistence rather than going into hematology oncology. So in January the 5th, 1981, I opened our practice in Dalton, Georgia. I literally was walking in the door, hanging a shingle, and finding a nurse and finding a front office personnel. I knew no one in that town other than the person who invited me there, who was a physician. His daughter was a nurse at Loma Linda when I was there. And they sort of recruited me to come back. This doctor had made a promise to the black community there that one day he'll get them a black doctor. And I was the person. Little did I know anything about that at that time. When I arrived there, I had three main goals in mind. Number one, I had to practice a practice like Jesus compassionate and holistic care. I thought that would be easy, folks. Daily devotions, prayer, that was a requirement every day. We would not start a day without it. Single solo practice, very easy to do. And we did that every day. And I said, listen, we're going to do what God says do. And little behold that I behold that I did not know is that the people in that part of the country believed in feeding babies biscuits and gravy at two weeks. Two weeks. Coca-Cola in their bottles at a month. And whole milk by three months. It was a very hard struggle for me because no other doctor was telling them something different. And when you walk in new and you're not a part of a community and you start talking stuff that people never heard before, <laughs> you're not well-liked or well-received. But God bless, I hung in there Despite that, I used to look at my rack of patients' charts and be like that thick. And I saw this four-shelf, you know, chart rack. I'm going like, boy, that will never fill up. (laughs) It was just like that. And I kept saying it won't work. Six months later, finally, I started finding people coming. But what was my problem? I was telling parents, you can't do that. I I, I did not use milk-based formulas. I did not agree with milk in your diets. This is 1981. (laughs) I emphatically told them that I did not stand for that or putting a child on dairy products. I did not believe in the fact that they should eat anything until at least eight months of age other than breast milk and form if they had to. And I espoused those principles. I stood up against grandmothers and the rest. And I came I was beat upside the head. And after about six months, I was kind of becoming depressed. My depression was from the fact that I couldn't influence anyone in an effective way to make changes, so I thought. About nine months into my first year, I received or I had a visit from the health department nurse. And she came into my office and she sat down and says, I want to talk to you, Dr. White." I said, fine. She says, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that? She says, I just came from a conference of all the health departments, public health departments in the state of Georgia in Atlanta. And there the the head of the Department of Public Health told us that every department, they've been looking at statistics. And he said, he said, he turned to me, and he looked, he says, what's happening up there in Dalton? And she says, what do you mean? She says, how come we're seeing less kids with iron deficiency anemia? How come we're seeing kids with better weight growth charts? And she looked at him and she said, this is what I told him, Dr. White. Finally, we have a doctor in a community who's telling people what to do that's right. I needed to hear that, folks, <laughs> because I was ready to go. I'm ineffective. There's something not going on. And so from that, I was say I was so encouraged that I moved forward undaunted. And continue to do what we practice in our holistic practice, teaching health principles, lifestyle changes, teaching the things that people need to hear they'd never heard before. I was imbued, I was, I was given a real new life. And uh, I added more stories to my things as I educated parents. And, and I was so happy with that, and God blessed. The other part of our goals was access, access, access. I told my staff that no matter what, if a patient becomes a patient of ours, if they ever call, and they're sick. We will see them that day. We do not go home until that patient is seen. I'm happy to say that that philosophy still continues today, that we will see all of our patients. If they call that day and come in that day, we will see them as long as that door is open. If they make it in before they lock, they can be seen. And we had that practice. Well, that may have been or should have been something that destroyed me, which perhaps the last lecture would say I was maybe messing up. But a guy gave me a lot of frontal lobe help. Because I would work from 7 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And I did that on a continued basis, averaging between 70-plus patients a day, up to 20 in the hospital. Start hospital around at 7 o'clock in at 9.30, go to work. I had a nurse practitioner who joined me up for, for, not joined me, but she actually came up there for a preceptorship. She came from Atlanta. And she was with me one night as we were walking back to the office to our cars at 10.30. She looked at me she says, Dr. White, We've been going since 7 o'clock this morning, and it's 10.30. I said, yeah. She says, why are you still smiling? <laughs> and I said, I am? She says, yeah, you smile all the time. <laughs> I said, huh. I said, because I'm happy. She says, why are you happy? I said, have you ever bought a new car? And she says, yes. I said, isn't it fun? She says, yes. I said, doesn't it have a great smell? She says, yes. I said, don't you enjoy the aspect of that new car? She says, yes. I said, what about nine months later? He says, ah, the nudist is worn off. I say, yeah, that's life. But let me tell you something. Whenever I think about how tired I am and how worn out I am, I think about that little kid who grabs me by the leg and says, I love you, Dr. White. When I come out at 10 o'clock or at nine o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning to see him because he has an earache. And he says, I love you, Dr. White. I said, you know what happens every time I think about that? I get a smile on my face. <laughs> it never grows old. And she says, wow, that's an interesting appearance. So access to care is something that we still live by continuity care. We try to make it a point that we would call patients that were significantly sick to make sure that they got the medications. They're doing better the next day rather than just call people. to Come back, come back, come back. we checked on them to see how they were doing. We made sure they follow them the care. Well, with these principles in mind, I could share story of story, but I growth just started just taking off. That little section with just charts like this suddenly went, few, 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 and all of a sudden I was buying new charting places. And as that happened, I said, wow, and I suddenly realized that we need to have efficiency. <laughs> we need to speed up our process and we need to make sure we remain highly competent. And so when, with that in mind, I had three major transformative milestones. Now, I'm going to say something many of you in this room thinks is a curse, but I'm going to tell you it's quite opposite for me. And I regret that it's a curse for you. But number one was the development of a philosophy and mission statement. Number two was the incorporation of an EHR. I praise God for EHRs. It is the greatest thing that's ever happened in medicine. That's my perspective. So you may have heard different perspectives, but I'll share that with you if you want to know in detail afterwards. And becoming an NCQA PCMH recognized practice. NCQA stands for the National Center for Quality Assurance. And uh, PCMH stands for Patient Centered Medical Home. <clears throat> First of all, in 1992, 11 years of practice, I recognize that despite how I believed and what I enforced and my nurse working right next to me and the one office front staff, as I began to add staff, I suddenly realized they have to be just like me. They have to have the same thought processes. You just can't have people who don't agree with you. And it makes a difference. Uh, And so I realized we need to have a philosophy mission statement. So I have a picture of the philosophy mission statement. I should have the other picture up here. But this is in the pillars of my office in stone. On the opposite wall, guess what's in pillars of stone? Ten Ten Commandments. You're right. That's exactly what's there. That's in our lobby. And that's what the patients get to see. And that philosophy mission statement that we coined back in 1992 goes like this. Our staff are qualified. God's fear and individuals seeks to maintain a divine recognition of each person's uniqueness by committing to provide superior confidential health care in a timely, efficient manner, placing the care of the pediatric patient above our own personal gain. That's our philosophy, our mission statement. We will value the importance of our patients and their families by promoting the optimum physical, mental Emotional and spiritual well-being of each through our commitment to excellence and continued personal growth. This is something that every staff member has to memorize or we try to get to memorize it repeat it every meeting we have. It becomes a standard we live by and it becomes regretfully the sword you die by. <laughs> and it's so clear. Every single person has ever left our practice left because they couldn't fulfill those particular reasons when it came to them walking away. Some people left because of other circumstances. But many of them want to come back or talk about coming back and keep in touch because they feel like they've left home. And that's something that we live by. This began that incorporation into the practice, a culture that says the principles of God must be abided by. The next thing that happened, as I said, was implemented VHR. Now, I had a little commercial I think my others might get frustrated today about, but I believe wholly by this commercial because I was hunting for one for a long time. I recognized my competency was being completely held back because, contrary to dictations, pediatrics, mother calls the next day or that night, I lost my prescription. My kid spilled the medicine, and I don't know what it is. Dictation to come back to the next day at that time. So I needed my information there, which meant I had to do a lot of what? Writing and it was horrendous, and it just bogged me down. And I also noted I didn't have all my reports. I didn't have my information at my fingertips. I didn't keep a real good record of all the medications I had given that patient, where I could look at them in a little short spot. I didn't have all my diagnoses right where I could see what's the child's history in a quick look, because that took too much what writing. So I dreamed about that, and I finally found an EHR in 1995 that was awesome. And it still is awesome today. I did my homework. It was an awesome tool. It works. It's not anything like what people say EMRs are like. Um, The um, Medical uh, Association of Georgia came and looked at our charts and declared that our electronic medical record charts were the best charts they've ever seen. So we have that written in writing at our practice. So EHR is the tool you use, and too many people use a bad tool and then blame EHRs. It's not EHR, it's the bad tools people purchase. But competency and efficiency became a part of our action. (sighs) Efficiency did lose some staff members because I didn't need them. (laughs) Uh, But our competency really rose. I was excited. We began to experience rapid growth far faster than I could ever dream of. It was just exponentiating at that time. Once we got the electronic medical record, we just took off. And as a result of that, our patients were traveling from the mountains of Elegy all the way to Dalton to see us. They were driving from Calhoun up to Dalton to see us. This is hour to 45 minutes to an hour rides. And if you know anything about getting in for your office visits, that's horrible. So I said, God, we got to do something about it. I said, if I at least put an office in Chatsworth... I could cut down that trip to 20 minutes. And if I moved an office in Calhoun, they wouldn't have to drive to Dalton at all. So in 1998, we opened an office in Chatsworth. In 2001, we opened an office in Calhoun. And by 2003, we were bursting at the seams in Dalton we had to build a new facility in Dalton. As with any growth, there comes many new challenges. I'll talk about some of those later. But I just want to say this much. By God's grace, we kept an eye on what, we counted, what counted the most, and that was what? The patients. That was one thing that made me happy. That philosophy of mission statement was working. The, the, doc, the culture of our office was really being uh, manifested. The next major milestone was the, the NCQA PCMH journey. I did not know about this particular product. I do know that back in the Institute of Health back in 2001 said the way medicine was practiced in medicine was all wrong. This acute care basis of medicine was wrong. It had to change. And I believe uh, with, with President Bush, he began to try to implement some things to make some changes. He even tried to do ICD-10. He got slapped down back in 2005. But what occurred is that they recognized that we had to really start looking at ourselves, not as a, a episodic chronic care, which is really an acute care chronic, care, chronic care picture. We needed to change that modality. And they developed some rigors. Very strong rigor. Started in 2008. In June of 2000, uh, in February 2011, they introduced the um, program that now incorporated aspects of pediatrics. I didn't know about it. An insurance company came to me and approached me. They said, Dr. White, do you know your practice does all this stuff that's awesome? Insurance company tell me I'm doing something awesome. I said, okay. <laughs> and, and I said, fine. He says, what do you want to do? I said, how, how do you want to handle it? I said, well, what do you have in mind? They said, why don't you become a, a patient medical center... Uh, home I said, "That's what we are." I said, "We believe in that in pediatrics." He says, "No, this is a whole program that's sponsored by NCQA. The people do all your heated reports and all this stuff. I said, "Really?" He says, "You think you might want to look at that program?" I said, "Sure." So in June, with their encouragement, they introduced us to this program. By uh, May of 2012, 11 months later, we were level three recognized all three of our practices which was a phenomenon. When we went to check. We were the only ones in the state of Georgia who had that that recognition recognition at that time. It usually takes 18 plus months to go through the rigors of becoming a patient in a medical home. But because that was at our core competency and the things that we did well, it became something easy for us to do. But I had no idea how much is going to affect our practice. It opened up windows that i never understood before how to really do comprehensive, comprehensive chronic care management, how to develop a team based care where your physician and nurses with the parents and patients. You work together as a team to handle these problems, develop huddles where you discuss the cases before the patients come in and you're prepared and you're ready for what's going to happen. And then those huddles that give opportunity for you to pray over those patients for that day. And you can do that with all these teams. Even our administrative staff have huddles. They meet and talk about how they're going to do these things, what problems they are anticipating, what's going to be seen. And all these huddling just sort of changed the whole perspective of how you see patients. It enhanced our providing effective care for our diverse population, how to understand people who were not culturally the same as you, how to look at their differences and be able to meet them. Also, how to do proper population care management, how to have continuous process improvement with objective measurements, and how to have social determinants of health and health management. These things were like, wow. And I was thankful again that I had an EHR where I could start learning how to work that into a process that actually works. So. um, This changed so much for us, and it helped me to think about one of those challenges that we were facing with that rapid growth. I was hiring a lot of people and bringing in different providers. Now we're outside of the realm of one office, one doctor. It was difficult to have prayer and devotion every morning. I couldn't pull it off. I said, God, how can I intentionally make a difference and continue your plan of making sure your principles abide throughout our practice? It was a major issue for me. How could I accomplish that? How could we do this? And it 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 hurt my heart. And I was just agonized at night. But with the PCMH processes, I begin to learn how to do things I never thought of before in my practice. I suddenly realized that I needed to work out a way to coach my people. I need to make them coaches. I need to train them. I need to teach them how to maintain the culture of our practice, which is what Christ at work. That's who we are. How to live that philosophy, mission statement, even though we're spread over three practices and we're growing in number. And with that, I developed a program, sat down and prayed and went through the Bible and did some research I develop a program. And I'm going to take you quickly through my management training program that I have for my practice. And we, I call it the secrets of success as a Christian at work. That's what I tell my management staff. And as we got together, I began with this particular process, and I hope that it would be encouraging to you first of all the number one thing is how do we work together how can we actually realistically work together and I found this text and I broke it down I said you know what it's a lot more in this text I used to see it says therefore confess your sins to one another pray for one another so that you may be healed the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much how do I use this text it simply tells us all of us are the same There's nobody in this practice that is more important than somebody else. Let's get rid of all this ideas of superiority. It doesn't exist. We're all God's children and we're all sinners. And the only way we're going to make it together is if we can accept another sinner with their sins and pray for them. How can you sit there and be honest about that? They go like, are you crazy? Uh Uh-uh. I'm not crazy. I'm saying that the only way we can work together is we learn to accept one another. And there is nobody better than anyone else. Secondly, understand righteousness. One of the number one statements that every man is going to say, I just want to do it right, Dr. Wright. I just want to do it right. I said, I agree. I want you to do it right. But what is right? What is righteousness? What is right doing? There is none righteous, it says in Romans 310, not even one. So we're trying to embark on something we what are incapable of doing. Let's accept that weakness. Let's accept that problem right up front. But Romans four, three to five says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So I said to my staff, I'll pay your salary. You earned it. But if you want to do what's right in this practice, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to have to realize that you don't know what's right. And don't try to prove it to me and cover it up when you don't do it right. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of him. In your own life, develop a devotional life. Pray, spend time, come to work prepared. To put your hands in the hands of Christ and believe in him. Thirdly, accept your weaknesses. Before I talked about being a sinner, but there's more to be a sinner. I tell all my staff, listen, White's Pediatrics should be a place where you can come and be accepted. It's a safe zone. There is nobody here that's not going to make a mistake. (laughs) There's no one within the annals of this hall that's not going to do something that's not right. Or the best way to do it because all of us are weak and we all have failings and we're going to make mistakes. It's not the mistakes that bother me. It's my response to the mistake. It's your response to the mistake. This is a safe zone. I do not hire people to fire them. I hire people to grow. And if you want to grow, this is a safe zone. So when you walk in the door and make a mistake, don't hide it. It's best to what? Confess it. Expose it. Get it out there. It's so neat to hear our employee come in and say, oh, that's White, I blew it. Not many people hear that from their employees. I do. It's strange, but I do. Oh, Dr. Wayne, I could have done it much better. I did this. They are safe to say they made a mistake. Why is that important? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians twelve seven to 10, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Humility. That's what it is when you accept your weaknesses. Concern this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Your most powerful employee is one who can say I'm weak. I'm frightened for those who try to pretend they do everything right. It's scary. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Did you hear that? How many of you are well content with your weaknesses? We need to wake up, guys. That's what God wants us to be. You can't effectively take care of anyone if you can't admit you're weak. Some of the most enjoyable times I have with my patients, I go like, man, I screwed up doing that. And they grin. And they walk out the door thankful because now they feel what? Empowered. They don't feel beat down and bad about themselves. That whole idea that let people know, hey, I blow it too. I would rather boast, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast are you hear me boasting a little bit? I rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. If you want to handle all this stuff and not get burnt out, understand it. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Amen. This is what it takes to be effective workers for Christ. You have to accept your weaknesses. Understand your responsibility. Galatians 6, 1 to 10 says, what is our responsibility? I don't think we get it. My responsibility isn't to necessarily make a great diagnosis or even come up with a wonderful treatment plan. Oh, it is. But what's my real responsibility? Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted here you go bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of christ you know that's all i was talking to my wife coming down the road driving here and she was discussing something with me about her doctor's visit and i said honey you know what the problem is with most patients I said, we don't take time to develop or learn their medical IQ. It doesn't matter how smart they are, the educational level, PhD, MD, doesn't matter. You're going online to just a mother who does has have high school, does just have an elementary school education. Medical intellect is totally different. And I told her, I said, your problem with most patients, no matter what their level of learning is, is that when they walk into a doctor's office, they're watching the doctor. They're looking for your reaction. And so when you start talking about the hemoglobin A1C and what you want to get it to and their doses of insulin and all the rest of it, and you say, how's it going? They say, I understand. And the nurse come back the next visit and say, well, do you understand what hemoglobin A1C is? Uh Uh-uh. They don't know what it is. But when you say it's hemoglobin A1C looks good today, that's all they want to hear. They're listening to you. They're looking at you. They're looking at how you perform to see how they're doing. They're not matching their own diseases. Why not? Not because we never took on their burden. We placated a problem. When you take on someone's burden and you get inside and see what's ticking with them, that's the work of God. That's what he wants us to do with our patience. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For one For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Tell my staff, lift each other up. Talk about the good things you do. Lift each other up. Do not not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. What's doing good? You're bearing their what? Their burdens. You see, that's not diagnosis diagnosis and treatment. That's love for a human being. And that's what those patients need. That's what we all need. And we need to do it even more. So, how does it say, especially to those of the household of faith? We need to encourage one another. That's why I like this. Amen. Meeting. It's an encouraging time, isn't it? It feels good to be here. Be accountable to each other. James five, 19 to 20 says, my brother, if any among you strays for the truth and one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Don't let your fellow worker get away with doing something they shouldn't be doing. Don't sit back and think I'm a tattletale. That doesn't work. That's Satan's own remedy to sickness. If you see your brother making a mistake and doing something, it is up to you to say what? Stop. Check them. No matter who they are. Remember, there's no respect for persons here, whether it be a provider or a doctor or whether it be a janitor or a nurse. If something's not being done right, stop them gently and let them know, you know what? That's not right. The earlier we stop these things, the less problems we'll have. Accountability is something we must do. Jesus is your success. Trust him. Whatever you ask in my name, John 14, that will I do so the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, <laughs> I will do it. How many of y'all really believe that? That's a tough one. I can do all things, Philippians, through him who strengthens me. It's all about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your power comes from him. You can trust him. I tell them up front, don't trust me. I am not that trustworthy. I will fail you one day. As much as I don't want to, I probably will. But don't trust me. Trust Jesus. He's the one that's in control of the practice. I just have a responsibility. But he's the one in control. And that's how we must deal with each one and each other. And then we end with prayer. Now, this is a tough one. I don't know about you and your staff, but my staff are primarily either good old fashioned Baptists or Catholics. Do you know the majority of them do not know how to pray? Have you all ever assessed your staff to know whether they can pray or not? I'm dealing with management people and majority of them were scared to death to pray. I mean, really are. And so I put them to a challenge. I make them pair up in partners. (laughs) And here's what I tell them. Start off with praise to God. Give thanks to God. Ask for forgiveness. Acknowledge your faults. Ask for his grace to make you strong. And here's where the problem started. I said, now you both write down your weaknesses and strengths and share them with each other. And you each pray for one another's weakness. and And those prayer partnerships go on. They're supposed to. Every day. I don't make them. I don't make them check a list, but they have prayer with their prayer partners every day. And they go through this process. That's what I ask every day. That they pray for one another, pray for where they know they're struggling, pray for where they know they're strong. Give them praise for that. And then last close in Jesus name while thanking him for answering your prayer. I know all you all know this, but I don't know. Do you know if your staff know that? How are your staff doing? This is such an important part. As a result of this process with my managers, I then, in coaching them, now do what I've been taught in medical school. I don't know if some of y'all remember this. See one, do one, teach teach one. (laughs) So they saw me. I made them. Now I tell them, go teach. (laughs) Go teach. Go coach. go, Go do this to all of your employees that's under your care. And this is now they're not prepared. They're not prepared to, first of all, learn how to hire the right people. Because they know what they want the people to do now, don't they? And then you can cover that in your interview. Train them to do it the right way. Coach them to success. And each one of the departments have an in-depth competency training program. Front desk nurses up to two weeks for some of programs, 10 days and others that we put staff through some grueling things. But one thing they each have to go through is understanding the culture of the practice. The whole idea of our Christian culture. So to make it simpler, the managers don't have to do what I did with them. I made it a little easier and we developed something that I learned from a pediatric institute. And that is to use what we call the kids principle. And this is what they teach in every one of our employees to train on the kid's principle. And what is kid's principle? It's simply kindness, integrity, dignity and service. And the way I ask them to train them is, don't sit there and just tell them what kindness is. Ask them what they think kindness is. Hear their response to you with kindness is in the hiring process. And then whatever they miss, you explain and cover up the, the different areas because they have a list of what kindness is. Then we go through the same thing with integrity. Ask them what integrity means. Ask them what dignity means. Ask them what does it mean to be of service. And then wherever there is gaps, fill them up. And this is what they are going to be judged by. They know that's what they are going to be looked at. That's part of their record. And that is part of how they be looked at in H.R., how well do you cover out, cover the principles of kids? So that makes it a simple principle throughout all of our office that they are now every employee is responsible for this attitude toward themselves, toward each and every worker, and more importantly toward the patients. And I asked them to give them this simple thing called the golden rules of kids. This is something you probably well know. Hear the words this patient, we say patient and parent. The patient is the most important person in our profession. The patient's needs are the purpose of our work, not an interruption. (laughs) The patient is an individual, not just a name, face or number. The patient is a real person with feelings and emotions like our own. The patient is not someone with whom to argue or match wits. The patient is the lifeblood of our profession. The patient is the person who buys our services and provides our income. The patient is not dependent on us. We are dependent on them. The patient does us a favor when they call to come to our office. The patient deserves our courteous attention. These practices help maintain the culture over now almost 80 plus employees. From two to about 80 plus employees. That's what we are. And we're able to maintain to a great degree the culture of white pediatrics. I praise God for that. This is to me something that has been very inspiring. How has it reflected on us? What has happened to us? <sighs> don't take anything of this as something that I gonna brag about because it has nothing to do with me. But this is the building that God got us to build in in Dalton, Georgia. The land that we are on, all around us, that lands right next to one of the major bypasses of the city. All the land next to us is still vacant lots across the street, still break vacant lots. The man who owns that property will sell it to no one. He told me he wouldn't sell it to me. But after talking to me and my wife, he looked at us. He said, you know what? Everything you do in Dalton benefits this city. And I want to leave a legacy in my name. And I know if I give you that lot, I let you buy that lot, you will leave a legacy to my name. Who gets that glory? That's it. And when we went to that lot, I did like a pediatrician does. I lowballed everything, got it as cheaply designed as I could. But he made me one thing. He sold that lot to us less than a third of its value, by the way. He says, Jeff, he says, Dr. White, he says, listen, I have to approve your plans. That's my only criteria, because remember, it's a legacy of what he wants to leave. <laughs> so I him my plans, and he looked at it and says, "What's that exterior?" I said, "Well, it's sort of sort of, sort of colored cement block." Uh uh-uh, uh brick it. <laughs> That's what he said to me. It has to be in brick. <laughs> Well, if God said it, he could afford it. He did. If God pulled it off, I have no idea to this day how he did it. Many times I can't understand. So that's our office in Dalton. We have their urgent care center. We have a separate center for uh, down below, the lower area down below is, is for our healthy kids, or well-child checkups, upper areas where we have both our urgent care as well as our regular care patients. Uh, we have a, a gym in there for the staff, small gym. We have a kitchen where they cook and do cooking classes, and we have a great conference room that we can use for all of our meetings. And we also open it to the community if they have needs. Marriage initiatives are held there. It's a free place. If it's open, they can use it. I don't charge. And we've been blessed to have Doug Batchelor as well as Mark Finley speak there. So this is how God uses what you have. Secondly, unbeknownst to us, opening soon is a new White Pediatrics in Chatsworth. It's taken off. Chatsworth is growing like crazy. Uh, one of the great physicians I have working there is here today whose patients love him to death and that place is taking off like crazy. Um, I got a great compliment just to, on my way down here. One of the parents, mothers of a patient called and said that their child saw Dr. Point de Jour and he is so awesome that he can calm this over hyperkinetic kid down. He can examine without any problem. I said, he is so wonderful. And then she made a comment and said, what? She says, my kids think he's another Dr. White. <laughs> I said, how about better than Dr. White? <laughs> but it's so neat. These are the things that just can bring your heart. What else has happened? Here's my staff. I'm I told to you two to 80 plus. Just just the staff. These are the greatest people on earth. <laughs> now, you might argue with me and I hope you win your argument, but you won't win it with me. I am so blessed with the people that we have there, their attitudes, the length of time they work. We have so many people on 15 year high about reaching 15 year status with us. We're just so blessed. And I can't think of that blessing more. How else did God bless us? Too numerous to share, but I want to tell you just a few stories and, and kind of give you what God is like when you live out his principles in action. And that is one is a, a hospital, hospital recruiter for physicians stopped by our office one day, just stopped in. And, um, went to talk to an HR person. He says, I just got to come talk to you guys. He says, I had an experience yesterday. He says, I was recruiting a pediatrician for another office in town and uh, they had spent their day with the pediatrician's office and then I was taking around the city of Dalton showing them what Dalton was like, trying to let them see where they might want to live, what they want to do. And he says, as doing so, on that bypass, they drove past our office. And the doctor looked and said, what's that White's Pediatrics over there? And he said, you know, he's recruiting for another office. You know, he really. And, he, and so she says, well, what, what about them? What's 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 up with them? And he said, hmm. And he said that he said, I thought and I thought. And the girl looked at him like, why are you taking so long to think he says, you know what? They're not like a regular pediatric office. He says, that's not really an office. They're a mission. I said, what a great compliment. He said, they're they're a mission. That's from someone outside that we didn't even deal with. And he thought to tell us that, but I found out why. A few days later, that doctor called us. Not interested in coming to our practice, but had made a decision to set up their own practice in Duluth, Georgia. And the girl said, I went and looked at your webpage when I got home, terrible looking webpage because we weren't spending money on that. <laughs> and I wouldn't think much of our webpage. I still don't think much of it, but it's getting better. but." She said, I looked at your web page and I read your philosophy mission statement. She said, and, I, and she says, I came by, I was in Dalton. I went by your practice. I saw it. She says, can I come by and pick your brain? Because I want to do something like that in Duluth, Georgia. And she did. A week later, she drove up to see me and I helped her set up how she might want to set her practice up. It was a really great experience, all because that recruiter said, What? We were a mission. That was an opportunity to share how to be a Christian in the workplace with someone else. That makes my heart. Um, I talked about the social determinants of health earlier. We first started trying to do our own separate tallies of uh, social determinants of health because there's really not a whole lot out there in literature how to pull that together. So it was a big deal to me because I want to know how to deal with my patients needs. And so we started doing that to quantify. Uh, and as well as qualify their risk factors. So we were trying to get this information. We weren't very good at it, but we kept trying and stabbing at it. After about three or four iterations of it, in that process, we started finding out the few people that respond that there were these needs. Now, we had already gone through our community in each city and combed the community and found every resource in that community that could possibly help a child. And we had books on every city of all the things that were there. And we found that a lot of people still didn't get these things covered. And I want you all to know something. This is where my heart gets so happy. What I'm going to say to you, I had nothing to do with. (laughs) I want you to hear my words. I personally had nothing to do with what happened. My staff started seeing these patients with these needs. And they started talking about it. And they said, this is not good enough. And my staff, along with my chief operating officer, set up a white pediatrics foundation. Most of the money that started the foundation, people gave as money off their check off deductions from their salary. That's how hungry they were to do something for these people who they were finding needs for. And this thing grew and it's bigger than I ever can imagine. We now have a food pantry in every one of our offices. So if a social determinant is met that day and a parent has some kind of food deprivation or how many of you all know that WIC doesn't cover formula for a whole month for a baby? We didn't know that. So these parents at the end of the month were struggling for food for those babies. So we have formula, diapers, baby wipes, food of other types right there where they can go immediately from the room, from the the exam room to the store and get what they need to go home with. We have clothes of all sizes. All of our clothes smell good because when we get donation of clothes, the staff take it home. And with their children, they wash the clothes and clean them and they bring them back hung up on hangers, sized and smelling good. And their children get involved with doing something to help another child. And his staff is pumped up. They're out there. They, they, they see cells and marks out there in the neighborhood. Somebody's got a closeout. They went to a mattress closeout and bought all these mattresses. And we have a picture of my social worker with mattresses on top of his little car driving to someone's house. They give him a mattress because they have nothing to sleep on. We are It is amazing. We have a social worker. We don't get paid for. it. We pay for a social worker and make a major change in the office and help us with our mental health issues and help us with all these. The, 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 the foundation issues and is in charge of that goes to all these community meetings, meet the needs of the patients. We help them with even furniture. We help a mother go get a driver's license, pay for the license, took it so she have a way to get her child back and forth. We have another mother get a GED so she can get a job. We help people go to the job interviews. We are doing these things and it's coming out of our office. People in the community are going, like, what is going on? And we've had two people donate a thousand dollars off their own personal checks just seeing what's happening. And this is what's transpiring because this is a staff that's pumped up over carrying the burdens to somebody else. They're doing this out of their hearts. And it just makes me so happy. I can't imagine. People wanna give me credit, I have no credit. To God be the glory. What an awful staff, what wonderful people. This is so strong, you have no idea how strong this is, but we had a DA who was handling a case in Charles court. And his family was in total need and no one was willing to help this family because they had supposedly shut doors and a lot of places that would help them wouldn't and they were in this legal system. And the DA knew they needed something. They knew he had no place to go. He calls us. White's Foundation. said, can you help this family? What was the response? We'll help them. We're not worried about it. We now have pharmacists in town who will call our office and say, I have a patient here with a prescription, and they don't have the money to cover it. Will you cover it? We say yes. And folks, these are not our patients. These are other practices' patients. And we'll cover the bill. And now we have a pharmacist who just fills it and calls us later and say, here's what it costs. <laughs> Is that going too far? I'm not going to say it, yes. You, you can't beat him Given. It's not. And I want to end with the, what I call the George's story. <sighs> Hope I can not cry on this one. George called our office about a couple of months ago. And he asked to speak to whoever does the hiring in our office, which is our HR director. Got her on the phone. She says hello. He says, "My name is George, and um, I uh, I'm interested in uh, coming to your office and uh, working there." And she says, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Well, I'm an RN, and you want to work here?" Yes, yeah, he says. "Well, we don't. Most doctors also don't take RNs because we can't match the salary that you get somewhere else." <laughs> And that's just kind of hard. But he says, are you sure? He says, yeah, I I just want to come to your office. And I I just want to just kind of work there. She says, well, we don't have a job opening and we definitely cannot afford an RN. He says, well, I don't want to get paid. I just want to work. What? I just want to work. What do you mean? He says, well, you're not the first office I've done this to. I've done this in several other places. He says, I'm going around and looking at places to work there to see for free to see what it's like, to see if it's something that I might want to do. She said, are you sure you are in? <laughs> and so she looked him up on, she him up on the uh, registry on the phone. He says, look him up. And she looked him up. And sure enough, it, he was registered there with his license as an RN in the state of Georgia. So she says, OK. She says, you really want to do that? He says, yeah, I, I want to just come and work free just, just to see what it's like. She says, OK, you want to do it? You're welcome to come work free. He says, I know you have different hours because we... I might not have told you that we see patients 264 days out the year, and we open from seven in the morning to nine at night during the week and the weekends from one to five in the afternoon. All for access to those who need. And he says, "I, I see you got late hours. Can I come work the late hours?" <laughs> sure, <laughs> love to have You come work so late hours, fine with us. Come on in, George. So George comes in. <laughs> He's for real. It's the truth, George. And he comes in and he works. And I don't know how many days he worked. It was a very short period of time. When my HR director got a call the next day, and George says, um, I like to work here. She says, There is no job, but but I want to work here. She says, We don't have an opening. He says, Well, how much would you pay our RN to work anyway? She says, I thought about that. I said, No, way. I'm not gonna get caught in this battle I'm playing games with people. She says, uh uh-uh. uh. So she gave him what she called a low entry salary for an RN rather than a, even a medium salary. She gave him a low salary. He says, oh, sounds good to me. She says, but there's no job. I'll I, I work for that. She <laughs> says, George, why, why are you doing this? He says, listen. He says, this is what she told me. He says, he says, listen, as a kid growing up, my dad worked hard. He was a good man. And every day Sunday, he went the church. And my dad's emphasis was to read the sick list at church. And when he read, he wrote the names down. And every afternoon he would go out and see everybody sick on the church's sick list. And he would take his son with him. He says, I'm so used to going out with my dad helping people who are sick and visiting the sick. He says, there is more to life than just money. He says, I want to work a job and I want to work a job where I feel like I'm doing something that makes a difference. He says, I have been here just a short time and I see I read Joel's philosophy statement and I see that yours isn't just talk. You're actually doing it and I want to be a part of it. So do I have the job? (laughs) She said so. (laughs) Job. George has subsequently come to work. He is loved by all the staff within a matter of weeks. He speaks to the people. He asks how they're doing. He wants to know what's happening. He wants to laugh and joke with them. And he loves the kids. Everybody loves George. He's just been there now. Just is that how, how long has it been? It's been a, about a month and a half. About, about six weeks. And when you think about that, what a statement it makes. And I'm going to put it in his words. When I was coming, I said, I might talk about you, George. And and so they said so they said something to George and George wrote these words down. George wrote his own words. I was simply job shadowing around looking for what I felt was like the right fit for me in terms of looking for a job. What I found here, white speech wasn't a simple job where you go through the daily motions, almost robotically like. But I found a group of individuals who treat themselves like family and all interact with themselves the way a family does. And I was hoping to become a part of it. And I'm thankful I am here. I have tried many other places like Hamilton, Hamilton Medical Center, a rehabilitation place in Chattanooga, Erlanger, and even a few local pediatric offices here in Dalton. And from what I could tell, I knew that your pediatric clinic was unlike others, and I wanted to come in and leave a positive impact on the young population and allow them to feel welcome and comfortable when they come to the doctor. So thank you for the opportunity, and I hope to make you and the White's Pediatrics family proud in the future. How many of y'all want to employ like that? That's off the street. You can't beat God giving. You just can't beat him. And the practicing the Christian principles involve more than the patient. It involves your whole entire staff. Let's get them embodied to finish God's work with us. What do you say? May God be with you as you live for him. Thank you so much.